0: Morning all, Morning. welcome to uh, God's cage, <laughs> yes. one of the perks of um, being able to, uh, to preach is being able to show the, the Simpsons in church, <laughs> um, hopefully that will connect in somewhere and justify that, but let's begin with a story. His heart was thumping in his chest, which is a good place to start for most stories, with the pulse racing. His heart was thumping in his chest as he walked through the gates, or rather the doorway, that left the hall of hewn stones and moved out into the the sacred enclosure beyond. And as he was shuffling down those steps, he was leaving behind him. The Sanhedrin. Now they hadn't been meeting that day because they didn't meet during uh, times of festivals like the Passover as it was Um, but being someone in his position there's no real way to escape meetings and so he'd still spent the whole day meeting with priests, placating different Pharisees and through all of those moments, through all of those meetings his mind was on another meeting one that was going to happen that night under cover of darkness. And that was why, as the sun was beginning to set across Jerusalem, his heart was racing. And as he shuffled down the steps and through the sacred enclosure, he passed a young rabbi who he could see walking towards him. He knew that this guy was going to ask him some question. and so he gave him a very curt nod and kept moving, not maintaining eye contact. And hopefully the young man would realise that Perhaps Nicodemus was on official church business, official temple business, and not to be disturbed. And he would just leave him alone. Fortunately, the young man took the message and peeled off awkwardly. And Nicodemus kept going. He made a line straight for one of the 13 gates that left the low wall that separated the sacred enclosure from the Gentiles' court beyond. Straight through the gates. And then into the hustle and bustle of the outer courtyard around the temple in Jerusalem. And because it's the Passover feast, there's all sorts of people who have come from all over the place. Uh, beyond the, that wall, the Soreg, beyond that low stone wall, there were, there were Jews and Gentiles alike. And the Passover was, well those days, it was as much business as it was religion. And as he moved through that crowd, ducking and weaving, he became conscious of the thought that maybe, maybe he was moving a little too quickly. So he slowed down and thought, well, maybe, maybe now he's walking too slow. And as he's kind of hitching up his robes to get a good pace on, he's thinking, well, how, how does one walk inconspicuously? And the more conscious he became of it, the more his heart raced and the more nervous he became that someone might walk up to him, recognize him and ask him where he was going. He'd left behind all kind of badges of his office, any kind of official robes that would easily identify him from afar. And he knew that the further away he got from the temple, the less likely it would be that he would be recognized. And as those shadows began to get longer and longer across the city and the lamps would come out, Nicodemus was hoping that perhaps he could just disappear entirely into the darkness. It's not like he was breaking the law or anything. I mean, he, if anybody knew the law, it was Nicodemus. You don't get to being on the Sanhedrin in the ruling crew without knowing some stuff. So he wasn't breaking any laws. It was not so much what he was doing, it was who he was doing it with. If the Sanhedrin, if the rest of his colleagues could find out who he was going to meet that night, well, he'd be in all sorts of trouble. See, he was going to meet this guy called Jesus of Nazareth. um, And this jesus guy from some obscure town up north had already drawn the attention of the ruling religious class in jerusalem in the the city and not in a good way a couple of days earlier as people were starting to prepare for the passover and coming in getting their unblemished lamb and whatever else they needed in came jesus and his posse into the temple courts and he starts to make this whip and soon he's kicking over tables and chasing animals out and raving about how dare they turn his father's house into some kind of marketplace. And he's cleared the that no one wants to go near him. This raging lunatic with a whip. And this is just a couple of days earlier. That little episode did not make any friends for Jesus. In fact, it's fair to say that The Sanhedrin is now talking blasphemy. They're now talking false prophet. They're now talking a path that is going to lead to this guy's death. He needs to be silenced and stopped somehow. And yet there are still rumors that he's about the city somewhere. And the temple spies are off looking for him. And if half of those rumors are true that Nicodemus has heard, if just a small portion of it is true, then Nicodemus has to see him. He's got to meet this guy. He's got to know. And so he walks through the city. As the streets become darker and darker, he turns left, south, down into the valley that leads down into lower Jerusalem. And you can imagine him winding down tight city streets, down staircases and byways. And eventually as he's moving through the darkness of lower Jerusalem, he knows he's getting closer and closer to the place where he has agreed to meet this man. And I can imagine in my mind Nicodemus looking up to his right over towards the west as the valley rises. Over there is the Essene quarter. That's where the high priest lives. And I can imagine Nicodemus moving between two buildings And catching a glimpse through that opening of the light coming from that quarter. And again, his pulse rate quickens. Because he knows what is on that hill. And what will happen if they catch him. And then eventually, he arrives. And in my mind, it's this quiet little courtyard Maybe some kind of dodgy little Jerusalem townhouse thing. There's a lamp up in the top open window that's casting weird shadows across the stones. And there's this moment where Nicodemus has a choice. He can keep walking. He can just pull the cloak tighter and keep going as if he was never ever going to stop there. And just turn around and walk on home but he stops at the doorway and he knocks because he has to know. See, we like to know. We like to know stuff. To be in the know is a good thing. Look at someone and go, oh, he's in the know. Loser. It's a good thing to know. To be clueless, that's usually a bad thing, right? But if you're in the know, then it's good, you know. It gives you an opportunity to do something. There's power. There's control with knowledge. And in addition to our natural inquisitiveness, we're kind of trained to seek knowledge as a good thing. Consider Christmas for a moment. Christmas just passed, and uh, who here hasn't gone up to their Christmas presents, sitting under the tree in a quiet moment and? kind of sized them up oh yeah I reckon I know what's in there and maybe when no one's looking you give it a little rattle a little, little feel check the weight because we like to know what do you want for Christmas uh, I don't know surprise me okay here's a portrait I painted of a pickled herring riding a bicycle surprise me now for those of you who are new to relationships or perhaps haven't learnt this very valuable lesson yet, <laughs> that the phrase "surprise me" is actually false <laughs> He or she doesn't actually want to be surprised they don't want to be surprised they may They may want to have a little little bit of mystery about. What's in the box? They may want to not know exactly what it is, but I bet you they want to know that it's good. They want to know that it's something that they will like. They want to know that it's in the right colour, the right size, the right shape. They want to know that you understand them. And they want to know that you've been listening for the last three months to all the hints they've been dropping. What they do not want is to be completely and utterly surprised. There are conditions around this. Knowing is a means to control. And control is generally a good thing. Which is why we give each other hints at Christmas. Which is why we make lists. Which is why we we ask for vouchers to places... (laughs) And for some, it may even be why we go out by our own presents, wrap them, and give them to our loved ones to then give back to us. (laughs) All different levels of control. And how we respond to the mystery of Christmas is quite interesting. For those of you who have um, some Bibles handy, we're going to be looking at John chapter 3 today. Um, there's little piles at the ends of the uh, rows of green chairs if you, if you can't quite reach one. Um, what's, the, what's the page number? I not you to throw up that first text. Uh, page 853 in these white Bibles that are getting around. Eight five three, And John chapter 3 describes the encounter between this guy, Nicodemus, who is one of the ruling class, a teacher, a leader. um, And he's arranged this secret meeting with this renegade guy, Jesus of Nazareth. And I reckon it's a pretty gutsy move, especially considering the fact that only days before... Jesus has torn through the, the temple, creating this huge ruckus, really upsetting some people. Um, and then here's Nicodemus trying to secretly meet with him. And I can imagine in my mind that as, as he opens that, knocks on the door and opens it up, he kind of walks through the lower room of that house, and there's these 12 guys just kind of lounging around looking at him, Jesus' disciples. 12 sets of beady eyes just looking at him like, you are the enemy. And he's kind of awkwardly walking past them and then up the stairs to where Jesus is waiting on the next level. Um, And if you pull up the picture, Em, I imagine something like this, you know. They've gone up to an upstairs, kind of quiet courtyard, terrace sort of thing. And it's just Nicodemus... And Jesus in that half light. And they start to talk. And Nicodemus opens the conversation by I guess taking a viewpoint that would be really quite radical if his colleagues had known about it. He he says that I, I know that all these things have been said about you. He kind of acknowledges that this might even be true. And then Jesus launches into this discussion. This carpenter's son starts to school the great teacher. They start speaking in riddles. And in verse 3, he says, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And for most people, this is a really familiar conversation. But I want to hone in on this idea of knowing today and what it might mean in the context of this conversation. Um... And so in order to, for Jesus to explain to Nicodemus this great mystery of salvation, he starts talking about the difference between heaven and earth. And he uses this analogy of being born again. And basically he's saying, mate, you, you can't do it yourself. What you're trying to achieve here, you can't do it. It's like trying to be born again, to go back up there and out again and imagine you can come out with this beautiful new baby smell it's not going to happen it's just not on the cards buddy as impossible as that is it is equally as impossible for you to be saved through all of your law keeping all of your attempts to to know this is not something that you can control Nicodemus This is beyond anything you've really considered. And Jesus starts to kind of blow his mind. And Nicodemus is asking questions because he wants to know. And Jesus goes, look, you were a respected Jewish leader. We're down in verse 10 now. And yet you don't even understand these things. Come on, mate. Kind of humbling him a little. For all you know, this is beyond you. And then in verses 16 and 17, he goes on those familiar verses to speak about the heart of what this great mystery is that Nicodemus is trying to understand. The heart of God that he wants to know. And for most of you, these words are really familiar. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that everyone... And I can imagine Jesus kind of eyeballing Nicodemus on that to try and push that point home. Because for Nicodemus, this was an exclusive club. It was not for everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world. And when he's talking about sending his son, he's already pre pre pre-framed this conversation by referring back to something that happened um, in the story of Moses, a story that Nicodemus would have been quite familiar with. So Nicodemus is starting to get that all this stuff that's going to happen to whoever this God's son is, it's going to involve perhaps death. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And for Nicodemus, this is, this is earth-shattering stuff. And if you look down through the, through the chapter... Nicodemus only gets a couple of lines in. And you know, that may be John just covering the points that he thought was most important. But I also imagine it's a bit of this for Nicodemus. Because the great teacher is kind of silenced by this rough carpenter. I want to know God. I want to... uh, but what I usually mean by that is probably something a bit closer to uh, to Homer's experience. What I usually mean when I say I want to know God is that I want to know God on my terms. So uh, if we go back to the Christmas thing, no surprises, thanks. Don't surprise me, God. But the problem is, is if we believe everything that we say we do about God, then God is kind of big. And we sing songs about how big and wonderful God is and how great God's love is. And we use words like majesty and awesomeness and all this kind of language that tries to get a handle on just how big God is. Um, But often we're a bit uncomfortable with that and we want God to be big but not too big. We want to know the how, the why, the what, the when and each thing we know sort of is like another stone in Homer's chapel, just builds a little bit more of a, a cage, a little bit more of a box for God. The Pharisees, of which Nicodemus kind of belonged to, they were excellent at boxing God. They had the whole thing very schmickly packaged. It was it was astounding how much work they had gone to to try and wrap laws around understanding and comprehending God, laws that shaped your entire relationship with God. And Jesus called them a brood of vipers. So it's hardly a career path to recommend. Beware the God boxes. Be wary of those who claim to have it all figured out. Because if God really is that big, it's not going to happen. Isaiah has a crack at this, reminding us of this Um, in uh, chapter 40. He says, Haven't you heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. Later in the Bible, Paul's writing a letter to the Romans, new church in Rome. And he basically tells them not to get too cocky because they're getting a bit full of themselves. They're going, whoo, look at us. We're the new guys. We get Jesus. We get Jesus. We get Christianity. Those Jews, they missed it. And Paul says this to them. He says, You are just a branch on the tree. You're not the root. Snip, snip. In Romans 11, verse 33, he goes on to remind them, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. So, what do you do? Not try? Why bother? What do you do when you are faced with an infinite God? And it's kind of like staring up into the cosmos, staring up into the night sky that just goes on and on and on and on. What do you do? Well, I think you try anyway. Um, Paul goes on in the next chapter after kind of smacking the Romans around a little bit, he says, what do you do in response to this? Surrender. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices is what the the next chapter is all about. Seek to know God, but don't dare presume for a moment that you will ever arrive, which is a bit frightening. And it's kind of, it's kind of overwhelming If you think about it. But then maybe staring at the night sky, it's also inspiring. I like to think that it may even be humbling. That it might even make us a little bit kinder to others when we realise that God is so incredibly complex that it's actually possible for other people to see something of God that we don't see ourselves, and that's okay. Let me read that for you again. I, I think it can actually make us kinder when we realize that God is so incredibly complex that it's actually possible for other people to see something about God that we may not even see ourselves. And by other people, that might be the person next to you. That might be the guys down in the sports centre. That might be someone up at Aaron Affair. It might be a person of a completely different faith. It might be a person of no faith at all. I think it's kind of arrogant and maybe even a little disgusting to think that we have a monopoly. On an infinite God. So I encourage you to embrace the mystery. Faith has no room if you know it all. Nobody's getting saved by control. And this is God's message to Nicodemus in that room. That secret after dark meeting. It's No one is getting saved by control. You need to live with a little chaos otherwise you're going to miss it by that much I love how um, C.S. Lewis kind of describes the character of God in his Narnia series, he keeps reminding us that he is not a tame lion he's not a pet God Ecclesiastes chapter 11 This was written by a guy called Solomon. If you're not familiar with Solomon, Solomon was one of the kings in the Old Testament. He had an encounter with God as a younger man um, where God sort of gave him a choice to choose great wisdom or great riches. And he had just enough nous about him to choose great wisdom and ended up getting the riches anyway. And he had just enough nous about him to realize that that didn't actually count for anything that all the wealth, all of the earthly success he had, um, it just didn't bring him any happiness anyway. And he reflects on all the stuff that he has learned in books like um, Ecclesiastes. And he says this about farmers. He said, Farmers who wait for perfect weather weather, never plant. If they watch every cloud, they never harvest. So plant your seed in the morning and keep busy all afternoon. For you don't know if profit will come from one activity or another, or maybe both. My dad's a farmer. In fact, he's a a really good farmer. He's here today, so I'll tell you next week what I really think. (laughs) It's a tough gig being a farmer. You can be as clever as you like. You can work really hard but you are still at the mercy of the weather. It is outside of your control. And so what does Solomon say in his advice for us in life, his advice for us in having relationships, his advice for us in getting to know God? Be like the farmer. Do all you can. Be smart. Work hard. But remember, you do not control the seasons. There will always be a little mystery. And unfortunately, as much as that kind of clashes against our human nature, we're probably just going to have to live with it. I imagine the story finishing. The Bible doesn't tell us what happens next, but I imagine it kind of finishing in the very, very wee hours of the morning. The lamps are low. Nicodemus has finished his conversation with Jesus and he turns, he walks down the stairs past the disciples who are always sleeping out through the doorway and into the city streets and he's just kind of, he doesn't know what to think and his feet are kind of leading him because his mind is somewhere else entirely through the streets, up the steps, back up the valley heading towards the north as he moves through the streets, the sun is starting to come up in the east. You can hear the sounds of people coming to life in the morning, the smells of breakfasts, animals awaking, households coming to life. Soon there are clusters of people moving through the streets, and Nicodemus is just kind of weaving and bouncing between them because his mind is still turning and churning over those words he had gone to see jesus to find an answer to know to to seek understanding of the greatest mystery of all and this is what he had told him john three sixteen and verse 11 this is how God loves. He gives His Son for anyone not to judge but to save. And that's one of the greatest mysteries of all. God, if we're honest, um, there is much about life that does not make sense, um, that doesn't cleanly add up. There's much that is difficult. To understand, um, and it is the the same when we come to you, you are if you, infinite how do we How do we face that? How do we come to terms with that? God, I ask that you give us the courage to to try anyway to face the little mystery in our lives and to not be the the god boxes who try to limit you or try to limit others understanding of you. May we be open to knowing you wherever that may come from. And in all of it, I want to thank you for the greatest mystery of all, that you would give everything for us. And it is so good that we don't have to understand it to accept it. Amen.